You are now, now listening now. to Renaissance. 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 So, so, so. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Renaissance Soul Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Frosh Frazier. And for this episode, I'm joined by DJ, music historian, and curator, DJ Amir Abdullah. Known for his on-track mixtapes with DJ Khan, Amir currently runs his own record label, 180 Proof, which was founded in 2011, which also owns the exclusive rights to release Strata Records' influential back catalog in unreleased sessions. This is actually a reissue of an interview that I did with DJ Amir back in December of 2018 for my other podcast, Fresh is the Word, and I just felt like it would uh, fit the Renaissance Soul catalog, so I'm going to reissue it. And uh, during our interview, we talked about Amir's roots in music, his collaborations with DJ Khan in the on-track mixtapes, becoming a music historian and curator. We also go into how he obtained the Strata Records catalog, the history and political activism that Strata meant in Detroit, and all of this centered around the release of the Charles Mingus Jazz in Detroit Strata Concert Gallery 46 Selden release that DJ Amir put through a few years ago. So we talk about the stories behind the recordings and what it uh, took to actually piece up all these um, recordings that he got of this legendary uh, jazz musician, Charles Mingus, while uh, he was in Detroit. So, without further ado, after a quick word from our sponsor, let's get into this interview with DJ Amir Abdullah and talk about Charles Mingus, Jazz in Detroit, and about Strata Records. For people from uh, my generation of hip-hop, I'm 37 now, like, the Khan and Amir mixtapes were, like, such, like a cool thing for all of us and, oh wow okay and i just Thank remember <laughs> like my friend putting me up on those and i was just like oh snap you know i think i still have one of them on cassette somewhere um oh, okay okay <laughs> and nice. yeah those were really dope um before in and now you have this uh you curated this charles mingus performance from detroit and before right. we get into this, I definitely want to just uh, quickly do some background about, you know, where you come from. You uh, okay. you label yourself as a DJ, a music historian, and a curator. How did right. you first get into just being involved in music, having a love of music? Where did that all come from? Um, it really stems from my um, – and it really stems from my uh, father. You know, my father was a big jazz record collector. And it just kind of stems, it just kind of ties into the Mingus thing. Well, my father grew up with Jackie Byer. Jackie Byer was the pianist in um, Mingus's band early on for, you know, a few years as well. So, you know, growing up in a household of like, you know, a lot of jazz and my mom listening to gospel and brothers and sisters listening, you know, to everything from disco to, you know, to, you know, uh, rhythm and blues and all that other stuff, you know, it just was around me. And then, you know, I grew I'm 48, so I grew up, you know, basically when hip-hop began, you know. So, like, just being a child of hip-hop, too, you know, helped me cater, you know, or, like, helped me help shape my my musical, you know, taste. And, 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 you know, that's really how it started, to tell you the truth, from there, from my father. I always give him credit for that, you know. And my family, you know, so. When did, yeah. Yeah. When did you start DJing and, or start just like collecting music and sort of getting this sort of cura- uh, curator mind to yourself? Well, I started um, collecting records pretty much when I was a young kid because, you know, like being at the age I am, like in the seventies, you know, like at Woolworth, they used to sell records and stuff like that. So, you know, like my, my brothers and sisters would never let me use their records or touch their <laughs> records. So, you know, I would have to go buy my own. So I would take, you know, like other kids would spend the money on candy and stuff, you know, or whatever. I spent it on records. If I wasn't spending it on records, I was spending it on comics or baseball cards, you know? So, um, so that's what I was doing. And 
and then you know in the advent of hip-hop you know like you you couldn't buy an mp3 or, or wave or stream anything so like if you wanted it you had to go to the store and buy it to, uh, the 12 inch of the album you know what i'm saying like and then just spiral from there and then the other thing is just like for me djing I didn't really become a DJ until like me and Khan kind of started doing what we were doing because before that I was just really happy to just be uh, a music lover and a record collector, you know. And and then you know when we first put out our first uh, official compilation album, um, Friday, uh, Uncle Junior's Friday Friday Fish Fry, on um, Seven Head Records back in 2004, you know, we got asked tour in Europe and that's when I was like well I think I should learn how to DJ <laughs> <laughs> so I did and you know um and then the whole curating music historian thing just came from I went to I went to grad school I mean well I went to college and I went to grad school for like you know sociology and African history so you know that that aspect of researching and being a historian in, in terms of like ac academia kind of you know spilled over into my into my world of music you know so it was like an easy transition because it's you know for a lot of the stuff that i'm into you know and being able to rediscover a lot of you know forgotten gems it takes a lot of research you know it takes a lot of you know know-how to do that so you know these are things that i either have naturally come to me or i've learned a long time ago or and are now a natural part of of myself you know, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Extending on what you um just said, uh, you said you went to uh, school for uh, African history. How did that education yeah. go into being a music historian and a curator? What was, like, the definite, like, skills that you were able to learn with that education that was able to be transferable into being a music historian? Well, all right, so... The, my 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 being at you know college and I studied African history and sociology. Um, what what those things brought to me in terms of like you know just being a music historian and everything was just like I was able to like really just go beyond of like because you know there's there's I'm not the first label to reissue certain kind of music jazz whatever you know yeah. and I won't be the last you know. But I think what I bring to the table is more of uh, an appreciation for the culture of the music and not just, okay, all right, here's the music. You know what I mean? Like, one of the things that really attracted me to Strata Records was that, you know, they have a, a, a great history behind them. Like, Lenny Sinclair and John Sinclair were part of the White Panther Party in, um, in, in Detroit, you know? Yeah. Um, they, knew, they knew Yoko Ono and John Lennon. They had a special relationship with them, you know? The guys at Stratus started the the first um, jazz music program at Oberlin College, you know, in 1970. Same thing at State University, you know. So they had like a history of trying to help the community, you know. And the only way you would really kind of know that is if you were from that time, or if you're someone like my age and not from Detroit. You have to do your research, <laughs> and you have to be willing to be able to do that. It has to be instinctive to be able to do that, and you learn those skills over time, you know by either like myself going to college and you know being taught to have those kind of th to, to have that skill set or it just comes natural to you you know and so that's why i was able to like you know stay with i can stay with confidence that you know i'm a curator because i've curated a lot of different things you know um over time you know and a historian is because i always do research on stuff you know i always try to find out the backstories of the backstory <laughs> you know, because there's always a backstory to the backstory. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> right. that's just that's just you know how to do it. You know, when you're when you're doing this research and uh, looking for to unearth these old recordings, what makes something good to be reissued or to bring back to light in the, in this era? Um, well, for one, like I said before, it's not just the music, it's got to be the story behind it to me. That's the most interesting thing because, you know, like being a record collective back in the days, you know, you would get a record, you look at the back of the co the back cover, back jacket, and you, you know, read about, you know, either the liner notes, read who played on the record, and then you go do research on like, oh, wow, I like the way he played horn on this record. Did he ever do any records by himself? You know what I'm saying? And it just files into other stuff. So... You know, it's the stories behind a lot of these records. And, you know, if you can get a chance to meet 
the artists or musicians if they're still alive and you can get even more you know of a a story behind why they made the music that they did and you know uh, what was it like for them and you know why in their opinion they weren't as successful or successful you know like it, it could be either or you know um some people say that you know like that uh, their failure is their greatest you know uh, achievement sometimes you know yeah. um and so that's just really how i look at it you know um you, for me it's like not just the fact that it's great music and it's great music it can't just be like one one song on the on the record makes the recording really rare and so everybody wants it just for that one song it's like i want to be able to like reissue a record or get involved with curating you know a reissue that has a great story behind it in each song each song is speaking to each other and that therefore like the whole story speaks to you and to the listener because i think people get more into the record and just you know instead of like oh here's a record you know like i think people are a lot more sophisticated these days you know right what was the first thing that you really took a deep dive into? Oh, you mean music-wise? It would yeah. be jazz, definitely. Because that's how I grew up on. That's what I grew up on was jazz. So, like, it would definitely be that, you know. Um, you know, my father loved Clark Terry, you know, um, you know, uh, Eric Dolphy, Mingus, you know, like all those all those type of records, you know, I grew up with. And, you know, seeing the, the original presses and how my father took care great care of them and that's why i couldn't touch them and i had to go buy my own <laughs> but my father's no longer here anymore so those are I, all his records i have now so you know it's a lot of a lot of music but my first love was like jazz and and then you know um as i got older you know i started listening to my my brother's records you know so beat like disco and boogie and and funk and soul and all that stuff you know and then as i got even older hip-hop just really just took over you know, especially for, you know, a lot of us of the hip hop generation, hip hop spoke to us in, in a way that, you know, made sense. How did your uh, partnership with Khan uh, originally um, happen? Well, I, I'm originally from Boston too. And I moved to New York in 95. Um, and when I was back, I think in like 96, I was working for some, I was an intern for some like local, you know, one of those indie rap labels at the time, and you know, I had some promos on me, and so I went to a, a record store here in Boston that's no longer open. It was called Biscuithead Records, and I knew the owner, and we were just talking, you know, kicking it about you know politics and the music industry at the time. Yeah. And Khan happened to be in the store, and he was like, "Yeah, man, you know, I actually kind of agree." And I was like, "Oh, okay. What, what was your name, man?" And he was like, "Chris." And we started talking, and you know, we struck up a conversation and then I was like, I was with a friend and she was driving me and so, so we had to go. And I was like, hey man, you need a lift anywhere? He was like, well, you know, I live right up the street. So we get in the car and I'm listening to one of like, you know, one of my mixes that I've made of, you know, of, of rare breaks or whatever. And as soon as, you know, uh, she turns on the car, the cassette tape goes into the, you know, automatically goes into the thing and it starts playing. And he's like, yo, you in the records and i was like yeah he was like oh shit so am i and so we just started talking and and, and that's how it really started you know it took me to move to new york to meet him you know back in boston where we're both from and right. we knew a lot of the same people but we and we just never got a chance to like meet you know while we were here which is weird but you know that's how life is sometimes what sort of uh, reception did you uh, get for those on-track mixtapes that you and Khan did uh, back in the day? Well, I can tell you when we first put them out, because um, I, I hand-dubbed all of them on my single cassette, you know, on my double cassette deck, you know, right. so I would be dubbing like 100 in a week, and I would travel around in a bag. This is like 97, so <laughs> with a backpack. You know, with all these different mixtapes on it, and it was hard because you know at the time in New York it was all about Ron G, DJ Clue, SNS. You know, all the mixtape DJs playing all the new hip hop stuff. Yeah. So you're coming in there with like a tape of like samples, and then you got to try to explain it so that the person behind the counter gets it. It was tough. <laughs> it was really, 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 really tough. You know, um, but I didn't give up. You know. Um, and I happened to work at Fat Beats Distribution at the time. And so, like, there was a guy that was Japanese that was working with me. And um, 
he I gave him the tape and he came back to me. He was like, yo, I have a store in Japan that wants 100 on track CD, uh, cassettes. And I was like, word? Really? <laughs> okay. So, you know, I spent the week, you know, dubbing them and I wrote my, um. well, I didn't even have a cell phone number back then. I had a pager. So <laughs> I wrote yeah. my pager number on it, you know, and it's weird because like, you know, I'm living in, in Germany now. Right. And so I've been to some like DJ's houses and they like to show off their cassette collection and they'll pull out like the first on track cassette and I'll have my like, you know, pager number on it. I'm like, wow. Right. <laughs> I even, I'm sure you guys tried it. Like some people were like, I tried to call it. You know, I was like, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, sorry about that. But, you know, so that that's really, you know, the story of it. And, you know, it just was a hard thing, and I was like, "Well, we'll do one more, and see how it happens," you know. Um, and then just kind of like kept spiraling from there, and it kept, you know, it just kept getting bigger. But in the beginning, it was it was super, super, super tough. People, I used to get dissed a lot. People were like, "Yo, this is whack," what, you know, like, "Why aren't you playing the whole song? Why aren't you putting a track listing on there? Why, 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 why?" That was all, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, but. You know, we we had a purpose and we had a, you know, we had a vision of what we wanted to do, even if it was just for us, you know. Right. How did you uh, first get involved in obtaining the Strata Records catalog? Um, Well, the journey for me to that was um, I used to run and I started Wax Poetics Records, you know, Wax Poetics Magazine had a record label. Yeah. And when I was when I said that, you know if I ever got in a position like that that you know the first one of the first records that I would reissue was the Lime and Wooded Saturday Night Special right. album. So when I got in that position, I called up my boy House Shoes and I was like, "Yo, Shoes, can you help me find like Lyman? And he was like, "Well, I don't know Lyman, but I know um, John Sinclair." So you know, then John gave me like um, Kenny Cox number. So I spoke to Kenny, like probably a few months before he passed away, um, and he was like, "Well, I gave, you know, I, I, I think he was like, I think I gave Lyman, you know, the rights back or something like that." Um, so he gave me Lyman's number. I called him and we had a conversation on the phone. And you know, I went out to Detroit. I took him to his favorite restaurant. He came to the restaurant with Ron, Ron English, you know, and they both gave me their masters for you know fish feet and saturday night special so from there um scion when they used to have this thing called the scion iq museum which yeah. is like you know online museum whatever they'd ask me and a few other people to like submit you know something on you know um lost youth culture from the past so i submitted something on strata and they accepted so they got me and a film crew to come to detroit i met um barbara cox on the phone, I told her I was coming. I wanted to come and interview her and talk about the masters. And I was like, so the first thing I asked her, I was like, man, a closed mouth doesn't get fed, man. So I asked her, I said, you know, do you have any masters or anything that was unreleased from Strata? Because I only, I, I only know of six records that they officially released. She was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll bring some up, you know, show you. I come, you know, I see the masters, and I was just like, you know what? I would like to do a deal with you where I can reissue this catalog. I just took a chance. You know, the worst she could say is no. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but she said yes. And I was super happy. I kept it so close to the chest. I didn't tell anybody until it was signed on a dotted line between her and I. Yeah. You know, because. And then when I did, people were like, oh, my God, how'd you get a hold of Strata? I was like this. I didn't do anything like super impossible i mean she is listed in the phone book in detroit you know what i'm saying like it's not like it's not like you know i had to go like digging to the center of the earth to find her you know what i mean like it, right so but again i'm not saying that in the flipping way you know because i'm really blessed to be able to have this opportunity you know to do this so that's really how i got to strata you know it's just that long convoluted journey i guess <laughs> What was it about the story of Strata that um, that you liked that really you know made you want to reissue this uh, th these recordings? Um, well, I really like the story of Strata because if you know, like speaking to like 
you know, Barbara Cox, the owner, you know, she talks about in 1967, you know, Detroit had a, a obviously a riot, you know, another one following the next year in 68. And yeah. she always calls them not a riot, but the insurrections against, you know, the political system, yeah. you know, and just the, the, the treatment of black black men, especially in 67, getting gunned down in Detroit, you know. So, um you know, just the story of them trying to give back to the community in a way that had been devastated, you know, two years in a row. Um, you know, education, you know, in terms of, like I said, you know, creating the first jazz music programs at Oberlin and Wayne State University and doing food drives and having the Strata Concert Gallery so that, you know, it was cheap enough so that, you know, people who normally couldn't, I don't know, pay $20, $30 to see Mingus, they were paying $5 to see Mingus. Yeah. You know, which is unheard of, you know, and it was all um, from what I heard, it was a, a non-alcoholic venue so that all you know ages could come and see, you know, these great musicians, you know, and they started their own publishing company, you know, their own booking agency. They, they were like a really self-sustained artist collective run and owned by started by Kenny Cox, you know, and to me, that was a great story. And on top of that. The music was awesome you know what i'm saying like the music is awesome the visuals of all the covers you know has like a certain aesthetic so that when you see a strata record oh yeah that's a, even if you can't even see the artist up close but just the design you're like oh that's a strata record you right. know just the whole simple black and white you know people were like oh you know why do they only do black and white i mean <laughs> i mean honestly john sinclair was like we didn't have budget to do color uh covers <laughs> but the black and white you know it worked for them right so, you know, hey, all hats off to them, you know. So that's really why, you know, I chose Strata. Uh, speak about the political activism of Strata <clears throat> in regards to uh, their position in Detroit. I mean, I can only speak very little of that. I mean, I would have to talk to Barbara Cox about that. But, I mean, you know, from what I understand is that, you know, they were trying to, you know, basically, like Tribe Records, you know, I'm sure you know of Tribe Records, you know, Phil Raylan, yeah. Marcus Belgrave, Harold McKinney and all those guys. You know, they were just basically trying to educate the community music-wise and have a space, a safe creative space, the Strata Concert Gallery, you know, for people to come to to mingle, to create, to improvise and to have that, but also, you know, trying to educate people on how to have your own publishing to be able to book your own tours, how to, you know, how to hook up with distributors, how to press records, you know, just in that way, having an education of really how to be self-sufficient. Whereas I think Tribe, you know, they have the Tribe magazine, which was kind of like the Black Panther news <laughs> as well of, of Detroit, you know, so they were even taking it a step further. You know? But from what all, all, all I know is that, you know, Strata was definitely deeply involved in the community in the way that, you know, most indie labels would have not been at that time. During this time period, which is the late 60s, early 70s, how important do you think was that uh, sense of community that Strata was doing uh, for just uh, the city of Detroit? I mean, it was definitely very important. Like I said, in 67 and 68, you know, that those two big riots, man, that just totally devastated that city, amongst other things, you know. And so um, it was important for people like or collectives like Strata to do what they did because – and you have a situation like that, man. I mean, the only other city I can remember that had two riots in a row, which is in a similar situation like Detroit, was Newark, you know. Um, and and – when you have a situation like that where people go through that, it's like people just give up hope, man. And like, you know, your community just looks like shit, basically. <laughs> but you don't want people to feel like shit. You want people to feel like, you know, that there's still hope and that there's still a way to get out of this, you know, this circumstance they're in. So, you know, for some people that's, you know, joining the Black Panthers, some other, some other people that's, you know, joining the White Panthers, or some people it's, hey, let's open up a con venue, let's 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 um hold our revolution in terms of, of a music way, or let's protest in our own way in a music way so that, you know, we can at least give people an outlet, you know, so that we just don't all go insane and go crazy and make things even worse, you know? So 
I think, you know, in the 60s and 70s, which, you know, was a very volatile time in America, especially, you know, around the time when the first Strata record came out in 73. I mean, you know, Tricky Dick Nixon is, you know, still in office and doing shit. And, you know, we're in the middle of Vietnam and it's a very unpopular war and civil rights era, you know, is going, going you know, crazy. And the Black Panthers are still, I mean, there's just so much shit going on in America, man. Like, there's so much chaos. And out of all that chaos, you got to have some semblance of, you know, peace, man. And, you know, and some of that peace came through music. How does the story of Strata sort of resemble what's going on in today's society? Wow. Well, we don't have Tricky Dick, but we have somebody probably a lot worse you know, <laughs> now. Um, you know, uh, for, a, for like a collective like Strata to be around today would be very important because I think a lot of the musicians to me, because usually during the time of, you know, um, protest and you know unrest and chaos in, in in this country there's always been amazing protest music revolutionary music come out you don't really hear a lot of that now right you know a lot of musicians are talking about how many cars and women and jewelry and blah 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 you know like everybody's like getting messed up in a club and on so many drugs and blah 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 and it's just like dude like there are communities in this country that are suffering so bad you know um that we need to we need to be speaking for them and give them a voice in a way that they uh, they don't have and i don't really see a lot of people doing that so a strata like you know a strata like able collective would be very important in this time you know because there's not a lot of people that have a voice there's no one really speaking up for them i mean there are some people but there's not enough right. and it's not enough on the local level either you know um and it's just it's it really is sad that you know that there isn't anyone really out there there isn't really one label or collective or that i know of that you know is doing that now, i don't really know know if that answers your question but i think that's in my opinion that's why strata would be needed right because of the lack of void of you know just no one has come behind strata and said like you know we had some labels in the 80s, maybe some in the 90s, but, you know, since the 21st century, it's all a bit, all been about, you know, money, 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 money. <laughs> right. You know? And I'm not knocking people for wanting to make money, man, but, like, you know, it used to be when you made money as an artist, you know, sometimes you would, like, not sometimes, but a lot of times they would try to pull the communities up with them, too. And you just don't see a lot of that now. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know? With uh, with the release of Charles Mingus Jazz in Detroit Strata uh, Concert Gallery, what's really you know what's special about these recordings? Um, to me, the the most special the, the most special thing about them is just the the intimate atmosphere of them. Now, when you listen to a lot of live recordings, you know, whether it's at Carnegie Hall or I, I, you know, wherever in the world, you know what I mean? Some big, you know, Lincoln Center or something like that. It's all about the music. And it's not really about the atmosphere, too. So they cut out everything. They cut all of you know, the microphone feedback. You know, they cut out all the conversation between the band sometimes, um, you know, and the conversation of the audience. Whereas this place was really, you know, it was an intimate place, you know. So I left purposely some microphone distortion in there. I left a lot of the conversation that was going on in the background. I left a lot of the conversation between Mingus and the band, you know, the banter between them. Cause I felt like it makes you feel like you're actually there, you know? Um, and I really wanted to convey that viewpoint to the listener. So for me, that's very important. The second thing is that, you know, for Mingus fans who really know his music and pretty much know, because everybody's like, it's George Adams playing on this record. It's, you know, I'm like, no, actually, Roy Brooks is playing the drums on this one. They're like, wow. You know, so like he had an unusual cast for this. You know, John Stubblefield only played with him for like six months before they got into a fight. And, you know, he was fired from the band. So this is the only time you ever hear Mingus and Stubblefield play together on record. You know, um, and then you got, you know, two songs one dizzy's profile which was never recorded or never on any other record except for now 
and then Not In Your Head Blues, which was um, recorded for the first time on this, but then they put it out in 1977, so it's still kind of a rare thing. You know, and the other thing for me is like not one song is, is under 12 minutes. So these guys really get loose <laughs> and they just they really just get loose. They feel comfortable. And again, this is a small space. You know, a lot of songs are between are between 20 and 30 minutes long. So you got to be invested. Yeah. You know, you got to be really invested to listen to it. You know, you know, and I've heard some people like, oh, you know, it's really long, man. Like, you know, I got to sit like, you know, it's not. I kind of also wanted to do that too because it's like we consume music and life too much these days so quickly and we just dispose of it where you know sometimes you you got to really just sit with something and let it, let it marinate with you and let it breathe and just let it soak it all in you know so it's not for the person who's going to be like oh I'm just going to be a quick listen because it's not and you won't get it if you're going to come with that attitude of it you know I was reading in oh, the yeah. uh, the booklet how that Charles Mingus was, you know, a very important artist of this time. But it was also during mm. a time where, you know, as it says, jazz was being marginalized. Talk more about that. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, jazz was being marginalized at that time, especially in '73, because you got all these other music forms coming along. You know, funk. You know, it's been coming around, and right before disco came really disco kind of killed a lot of the things for jazz, you know, cause jazz was one of those things where, you know, especially when hard bop and, you know, and bebop came around, it wasn't something that you would dance to. People would sit down at clubs, you know, have their cognac or whatever and sit and listen to, you know, so there wasn't really like a, um, a, a dance aspect to it. You know, it wasn't until like, you know, rhythm and blues and, and, and like funk and soul came around when James Brown came around. Cause by, by the time 73 came around, James Brown was in the middle of being who he is, the legend, you know? <laughs> so you got music that people were dancing all up and down around. And I think that's one of the reasons why Miles decided to go in the direction he did of, you know, fusing other music forms with jazz to, because as he said, you know, I was bored. <laughs> you know, Miles was like, I was bored and I wanted to create something that, you know, would keep my attention. And also it kept a lot of people's attention um, around. So I just think that, you know, <clears throat> jazz, you know, at that time was and then also, you know, like there's a part on the recording too, like right before the Roy Brooks interview, the interview of Bud Spangler's talking to one of the some, some some journalists at the time. And he's talking about how like. You know, what they're trying to do, the jazz, and they're trying to, you know, say, well, this is real jazz music, and that's not real jazz music. And, and what they're saying is real jazz music is, like, really watered down, you know, like, sterile music. And they're propping up certain artists as, like, this is the person that, you know, you know. So it's like, you know, the labels in corporate America was co-opting the music of jazz and, and, and bastardizing it. Yeah. And people could see that back in 73, you know. Um, and... Pretty much to me, that's what happened to hip hop right now. <laughs> right. Like nobody's, nobody, nobody's learned a lesson, you know, like it keeps, keeps on happening. It's like a gift that keeps them giving, unfortunately, you know. Right. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, you know, just, it, you know, people couldn't, you know, really do what they wanted to do. And, you know, and that's why like a Don Cherry and Dexter Gordon and all those other jazz musicians came to Europe because, People in Europe are like, you know, we still love traditional jazz, or we actually have never heard it in its proper form. So they got to come here in Europe and get appreciated, be welcomed, and make a living, which was also obviously very important because a lot of these guys were going broke. Yeah. You know, they weren't able to make a living. And honestly, yeah, we love to make music and all that other stuff, but, you know, you got you to gotta eat to live, you know? So... That's that's what I would say. In your in your research, you know, what sort of a person was Charles Mingus? When I was uh, reading the the liner <clears throat> notes, the word troubled soul was used at one point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people said he was a troubled soul because he was a volatile person. He was a type of person, he was a hard taskmaster. Task taskmaster, task you know, because he you know, he would be 
on you. Like if you couldn't play the notes or you couldn't keep up with him or anything like that, he would come over to you and tell you he would get in your face. And a few times he was physical with people, you know, and he was a very opinionated person. Like he wasn't really into like free jazz and he made it known. You know that he was not into free jazz. He was not a big fan of Ornette Coleman and that whole style of free jazz. He, for him, he thought they were just making a bunch of noise. You know, like he even said that. You know, he's like, "This is just a bunch of noise. You guys are not really knowing what you're doing. You're just throwing things at the wall to see what sticks." So, you know, being that you're such an opinionated person like that, of course, there's going to be some backlash and people are going to be looking at you different. But I think the other part of why he was considered a troubled soul because a lot of his music spoke to black Americans. He had a lot of, he had a revolutionary aspect to his music where he was trying to speak for black people in America, you know, and ever since, you know, the fifties, forties, when he started on up to 73, you know, for black people in America, it was obviously <laughs> tough, you know? Um, so like in the wider, the wider audience, you know, they're not trying to hear that, you know, you know, they just want you to shut up and play, you know, kind of how like, you know, Laura Ingham said to uh, LeBron James, just shut up and play. Right. You know, stop, stop talking about politics, you know, and, and Mingus was not going to do that. He's like, let my children hear them, hear music, you know, you know, let the, let the, let the young ones experience this because if they experience what you're this madness, we're all going to go insane on this planet, you know, and we need, we need, we need something like that, you know, so I think, you know, quite honestly, there was some racism involved in what, you know, he, because I mean, people talk about how volatile he was, but I mean, Miles was a motherfucker, man. <laughs> I'm a person, you know? yeah. But <clears throat> Miles was, he was an asshole to people. I mean, he was regular. He, he was physically abusive to several of his wives, you know, but he's still considered a genius. You don't really hear people going at him about that. Same thing with James Brown. James Brown was, you know, physical with some of the women in his life. And he really treated his band members like crap. And you saw that in the film Soul Power and other ones about him, you know, um, and Bootsy and all those guys can have written a litany of things that James <laughs> Brown was like, but he's still considered a genius. When yeah. you come to, to Mingus, you know, it's kind of like, you know, he doesn't get almost the same respect, you know, because, you know, he was a, he, the big, first of all, the bass, you know, it, it's not a, for some people, it's not a sexy musician, uh, instrument, like, you know, the trumpet or the piano, right. you know what I mean? He's playing a bass and he's playing a double bass. So, you know, you're getting people like, whoa, Okay, yeah, he's cool, but that's the base. Who cares? You know, it's like, you should care. This guy was a, a genius. He was one of the greatest composers in this country. I mean, the only other composer, I think, in in, in America that was more prolific and a legend is Duke Ellington. You know? Yeah. So, like, uh, you know, the man should get, you know, a lot of props for what he did. You know, what he had to go through, you know? And if he was a little volatile, you know, <laughs> okay, all right, cool. I mean, some things he may, he should have, I'm sure he probably regretted doing, but, you know, you can't live your life with regret, you know? Right. So, yeah, that's what I would say. What would, what do you think was Charles Mingus's influence at the time for jazz music? And then what do you think his legacy will be? Um, hmm. what I would think his, his influence on jazz music was, you know, for my, I, I, I'm not going to speak as an expert on him or on jazz music, but I will say that I think his influence was just his arrangements, how he was able to arrange songs, his leader, his, his, uh, his leadership skills as a band leader, I think were top notch. I mean, he went through several different, um, you know, bands, quintets, or whatever. But he always was able to get, I think, the best out of them. You know, and that's not an easy thing to be—a great composer, a great band leader, and by the way, I also play a mean bass. There's not a lot of people that can do that. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think 
his improv his uh improvisation skills you know um also are top notch i think that you know that's one of the things that really separates him from a lot of the jazz musicians at the time um you know uh i think one of the things that makes him different from like miles miles you know i felt like miles was the type of person who created he he was like a more of like a freestyler to create whereas like i think mingus needed a was more of a structural creative person he needed some 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 kind of initial structure to then create off of that and freestyle off of that you know it's kind of like some some djs like you know that they can just show up without having a plan set and just you know play random songs off their you know computer or you know through their through their record collection yeah and rock a party where some people need to actually really i need to sit and plan a set you know what i mean right. and i think the second part of your question was again Oh, what would his legacy be? Um, wow. I mean, his legacy would be, you know, just um, really pushing music forward and just, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't fall into the thing of like the whole jazz fusion thing. He basically kind of stuck to, you know, hard bop and stuff like that. So I, you know, for him, for me, he was a very consistent person in that sense, and that consistency, um you know, really separated him from many others. And I just think that, you know, him being a multi-purpose musician and, you know, what he had to go through as a black man in America and be able to, like, you know, express that through his music and through his arrangements and through his lifestyle, you know, it makes him a very unique individual. You know, none like we're going to see in a long time, you know, um, I can't think of anybody right now who I could put and say, hey, you know what? That that person reminds me of Mingus. You know, he has that little edge to him. Right. You know, he 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 can arrange. He, he can lead a band, but he can also get in your face <laughs> if you're not playing right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know anyone like that who has all, all of those aspects to him, <laughs> you know, um, and he really cared about his community. You know, he really cared about his community. And that that's a special thing that I don't, you know, that comes around once in, once in a while. And like, again, I don't really know anyone that's really taken that torch now in jazz. As someone like you who has been a lifelong jazz fan, is there any newer artists, newer mus- musicians that you're, you're quite fond of who are, you think are doing some special things? Um, I like Kamazi Washington. Um, I like uh, Yusuf Kamal. No, Yusuf. Yeah, is it Yusuf Kamal? I, I think it's Yusuf Kamal. I always get it um, mixed up with um, someone else. But you know, Yusuf Kamal. Um, I like Nubia Garcia. You know, um, I like Jose James. I like what they're trying to do. I know some of them get criticized. You know, for not really sticking true to, you know, the roots of jazz. But I mean, I mean, who is right now? <laughs> you know, right. who is right now? So it's, and a lot of this is coming from people who, you know, are not really doing what they say, what they, what they're criticizing other people for doing. So, I mean, at least there's a younger generation, you know, trying to make it happen. I recently got put onto this, uh, this cat named uh, Makai McRaven, you know, okay. um, I think he's from uh, California. We uh we all did the uh, Berlin Jazz Festival last weekend, actually last Saturday. Um, together uh, it was like um, Nubia Garcia and this other guy named Joe Armand Jones, who's another one that I think is really good. You know, um, there's like a burgeoning young when I say young, but like millennial jazz scene in London, man, that's happening. That's really, really, really happening, man. And they all play together. They all jam together. You know, and I wish we had something like that in America. I mean, Kamazi has his collective, you know, um, and there's a few, probably a few other collectives, but it's just not the same, you know. And again, it's like, you know, someone from over here in Europe has to show us again how it's done (laughs) of something that we created, you know. Yeah, it's funny that over like overseas (laughs) in Europe, like 
they'll still have appreciation for a lot of different types of music, whether it is jazz or hip hop or heavy metal or eighties metal. And they'll just kind of, and they'll even just put it all together, you know, all the different types of rock music together in a festival or, you know, jazz with hip hop or whatever, you know, being that you're over there, what's sort of the feeling about the appreciation for music? Um, The appreciation for music over here is, is, is great. You know, um, it's like there's a lot of knowledgeable people. You can't play like I remember the first time I came over here in 2004, and um, I played in Munich at this place called the Atomic Cafe, and I'm playing like you know some James Brown because it was like a funk party, and I'm like, okay, you know that's funk. And this woman came over to me and she said something in German. I was like, I don't speak German, and she was like, ah, okay, please stop being the bullshit. Go back to the real, go go to the real funk. And I was like, <laughs> Whoa. I was like, whoa, okay. I thought I was playing, you know, and I got a quick lesson that people, you know, they're like, yeah, we love James Brown too, and we know that, but we want you to go deep. You know, (laughs) we don't want to hear what, you know, like the regular stuff. So then after that, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I got you, you know, and I learned from there that people over there really appreciate, you know, um, music in a way that, it's you know, and then they dance to it too. It's not just a you know like uh, a nerdy thing. People dance to the music as well, but they want to dance to something that's just as infectious. But you know, they may not know what it is. Yeah. You know, when you're in London and playing and you as a DJ and you're playing music and people are like tune, tune, man, tune. That's like when you know you've done a good job. <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah. So uh, what's next for you? What's on the horizon for uh, DJ Amir? Um, oh, what's next on the horizon for me is still, you know, working this Mingus thing. Also, you know, I got a, I'm working on the, the next Strata release, which is Sphere, uh, the Sphere record. Um, but I did find one of the masters because there's, there's been several masters for all of these, you know, recordings. I found a master with like three extra tracks that were not on the uh, vinyl. So it's going to come with, you know, sort of be a double vinyl with uh, those extra tracks. Um, and I'm trying to track down the other live recordings with Herbie and Onel Coleman and everyone else that performed the Strata Concert Gallery. And, I, and the other thing, too, is like, you know, I'm starting, I'm going to create my own lecture series where I'm going to be doing going around Europe and just talking about my discovery of the Mingus, you know, recordings and my work with Strata, because I think it's a very important story that you know a lot of um music historians especially jazz historians need to know um so that's pretty much what i got going on in the future and i'll still be in berlin you know between berlin and brooklyn you know um and then trying to put out some more compilations with bbe i don't know what those will be right now i'm still trying to figure that out you know but i'm in no rush you know so that's pretty much what i got going on it's a lot i think but you know (laughs) right probably be more Yeah, before we get out here, I always like to end my interviews with uh, the same question. And that question is, who's somebody that's been a part of your life or career that I could realistically interview that would have some good stories or lessons Mm. to talk about? Oh, that would be Lenny Sinclair. Lenny Sinclair has, you talk about a person that has a story. First of all, her story, period, is amazing. You know, so she worked with Strata. You know, she did. She took a lot of photography. She's a famous photographer on her own herself. You know, yeah. she's taking photos of like, you know, uh, Fela, whoever. And just coming from East Germany, you know, to America, that's why she still has a thick kind of German accent. But I mean, that's a person that you really want to talk to who has some rich Detroit, you know, uh, music history in her. Right. That's a person you really, really would you would be sitting there all day like, wow, wow, <laughs> wow, really? Wow. Like you just, you know, you wouldn't even want to leave, you know, because she has so much history and she's so cool, man. She's so cool. And she just wants to be able to share a lot of that stuff. You know, she's been through a lot, right? you know, to 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 get where she's at. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy for her and everybody in Strata because, you know, you're trying to do all this revolutionary type of work and you're trying to be creative and everything, but you got a lot of people against you, you know, a lot of haters, as they say, <laughs> you know, the willing to take your life, not just hate on you, 
Right. You know, so I would I would definitely recommend her. And she she's in Detroit still, you know. Right. So that would be a person I would say. Right. Before uh before we get out here, what um where can people go online to check out what you're going on, what's going on with you and more information about this uh Mingus project? Um, I would say the best way is either Facebook.com one eighty proof records. Or um, and I need I need to update my website, so I would use that one, but it's not updated yet. I need to get around to doing that. You know, when you're a one man operation, it's kind of hard to do everything. <laughs> right. Um, but I would say you know, like that or Instagram 180 proof. You know, I use both of those very very um very much, and I'm always posting everything that you know that I got going on reviews. Um, and then with the, for me as a personal DJ, it would just be, you know, uh, facebook.com, you know, um, DJ Amir, you know, I'm posting all my gigs and everything like that. So, you know, so that's, that's pretty much it, man. You know, I really appreciate the opportunity, man. All right. Great. Yeah. Thanks for uh, chatting with me. It's been great talking with you, man. Oh, no worries, man. No worries. And, uh, you know, good luck with everything. And, uh, thank you for listening to the Renaissance soul podcast. Hosted and produced by myself, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. Empowered by Anchor at anchor.fm slash renaissance soul. Renaissance soul theme music provided by Steve O. You can find more of his productions at imsteveo.bandcamp.com. And that's E-Y-E-A-M-S-T-E-V-E-O.bandcamp.com. Renaissance soul is available on all streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Renaissance Soul, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh of the word. Follow Renaissance Soul on social media on Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at Pod. And join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fresh the word. And for more information on Renaissance Soul, visit freshofthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Renaissance, Renaissance. 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 Renaissance.